If you could picture a scenario, give you a hypothetical scenario. Um, this could be any family, not specifically speaking of my family, but you've been working at church all day, and uh, you finish your you actually finish your to do list, which you you haven't done in months, and, and you're feeling pretty good about that, and you. You're heading home and you're crossing Elm Street, you're crossing whatever street you cross, and there's no traffic. And you're walking towards your house and you see that the front lawn looks particularly green and cut into straight rows. And it's just, everything just kind of looks nice. And you go in and your spouse is cooking dinner and busy at the stove. And your two pre-teenage children are sitting and reading books on the couch. And it, you just... It's just so wonderful. And then, and then you turn back to greet your spouse, and then, boom, behind you, an Xbox controller comes flying across the living room in anger. And then a scream from a young girl who throws a sneaker in the other direction, and then you hear the smoke detector going off. You turn around, and whatever that beautiful smell that was cooking is now burning on the stove, and you think to yourself, what just happened? What in the world went wrong? Our text today is about the reign of King Solomon. And if you were here last week, we talked about how Solomon, uh, was he succeeded his father David, very famous king. He's ruling over Israel, God's people. And it was a very high point in the kingdom. And he had built a temple, and the presence of God had filled the temple. It was spectacular and good. And he was one of the richest he was one of the most successful, one of the most wise people to ever live on earth. And he was probably the most successful person of his day. And uh, I mean, things were really good. First Kings chapter 4 says that the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. 1 Kings 10 says that the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. It was such a prosperous nation. That just like this gravel out there, they had that much silver everywhere. Yet, here we see the downturn of a kingdom. It comes crashing down. And the rest, we're going to spend the whole summer looking through the book of Kings. We're just going to see the steady decline uh, of this kingdom. How can this happen? How can such a lively nation, a wealthy nation, uh, a, a, a content nation, how can it slide in one generation? How can it slide so far down? What went wrong? So what I want to do today as we look at this is answer that question. What went wrong? Secondly, what was God's response? And then lastly, you know, what's our response? How might we learn from this and maybe safeguard our own lives from this type of uh, what went wrong Situation. Let's pray together. Father, again, we, we just stand before you, very humbled that you, the King of the universe, desire to meet us where we are. Yet you do. And as we approach your word, we know by the power of your Holy Spirit that you, that you make it alive, that it is living and active, and that we know your heart. And really, we know our own hearts as we look into your word. So, Father, I pray that you would be our teacher and that we would be obedient in this time. We give it to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So, so what went wrong? I, um, leading up to this, there's a little bit of... Things are going pretty good for Solomon. But 
as there is prosperity and success in the nation, the, the wealth that he's accumulating is starting to uh, balloon a little bit. He's got uh, starting to collect horses and amass a big army, and there's the silver and the gold, and it's this accumulation of lots of wealth, it's just kind of having whatever he wants in this huge success that is the start of where things are going wrong. God's law in Deuteronomy 17 said that uh, the king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or, or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. This is God's law written many years before, warning that if there was a king in Israel, this is not to happen. Yet, uh, where do you think Solomon's horses came from? Egypt. And remember, when we think about Egypt, we think about the fact that God's people were slaves in Egypt. And that God, by his own power, rescued them out of that land. It, it, it was the exodus, the time of the exodus, we call it. And so they, they leave Egypt, and God said, look, I have done this for you. I have saved you because I heard your cries. I'm a God who saves. Just don't go back. So anything that goes back to Egypt, don't start collecting stuff from Egypt. Don't marry people from Egypt. Don't do that because I've taken you out of there and I'm bringing to you to a new place that I'm providing for you. Don't do that. But yet, Solomon, as he's amassing things, he starts to uh, forget this. So he has this uncontrolled excess. But we know, or we are learning, that material possessions will never bring us true satisfaction. They won't bring about faith and obedience. They don't even bring about ultimately bring about happiness, that material possessions and wealth can actually be a hindrance to faith. In the book of Proverbs, not the part that Solomon himself wrote, but in another part of the book of Proverbs, the prayer of wisdom is that, Lord, don't give me riches or I might disown you and say, who is the Lord? The, the prayer of a wise person is, Lord, if I have too much stuff, I might start to trust my wealth. I might trust the security and the things that I have more than I trust you, Lord. Don't let that be. Jesus said it's very hard for wealthy people to enter into God's kingdom, to be part of what God is doing on earth. It's very hard if we have massive wealth. Now, there's nothing wrong with wealth and possessions, but they are dangerous in the sense that they can drag us away. And here, this is, uh, seems to be part of the problem. But, but it's just part of the problem because the excesses didn't stop with the uh, gold and the silver and the horses. Uh, there was, those would have been good warnings for Solomon, but it didn't stop here. You know, there was no warning sign that said, you know, Solomon, stop. And, and it's good, you know, you, when you're driving around, and you're, you know, sort of watching the speed limit. But then you drive by one of those signs that actually flashes back to your speed limit, or your actual speed, in light of the speed limit. And it's just, um, you know, that can be very helpful to, to be reminded of that. And to actually say, wow, am I really going that fast? Except the one on 28 here. On, <laughs> up right by Phillips Academy. That one's terrible. Why? Because it's a downhill, and the sign tells you how fast you're going, but there's a little uphill. And you want to... We all want to save gas and preserve resources. So you, you, you use the momentum from the downhill to get up the uphill and then you're going the right speed. But if you do that, the sign tells you to slow down. And you want the sign to do what? 
the smiley face, right? If you go the right speed, it gives you the smiley face. So I'm balancing between conserving fuel and the smiley face. That's a waste of time. But what would be fantastic is if there was one of those, um, a moral sign like that. So you're walking and you're living your life and the sign says, oh, JP, uh, you're, you're, you're getting a little out of bounds here. And it would just sort of shine. Now, we don't have, that doesn't exist yet. But we do have, we do have friends. We have people in our small groups. We have perhaps mentors in your life or people you trust. People who you've given permission to ask you those hard questions to maybe point things out to you. The people who have that spiritual hunting license, we call it, in your life to help flash that sign to you. But here, these excesses aren't enough of a warning. We get the next part of the problem. We see right here in verse 1, chapter 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. And you get to, you, you, you're reading through Kings, and you read these 10 chapters, which portray Solomon very favorably, and you get to this verse, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. You just say, this is not going to end well. This is not going to, this is, this cannot be good. And of course, it does not end well. The first foreign woman he is uh, most, uh, well, he marries is is the daughter of the Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt. So when God says, don't go back there, don't marry these women, don't make a treaty with them, yet he marries um, the Pharaoh's daughter. So realigning with Egypt's already not a, a good thing. And God's law was clear. He said when, in Deuteronomy 7, when, when God brings you into the land you're entering, um, make no treaty with these other people. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you, and you will quickly and, and will it will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. I mean these now you, we think of it through our eyes and our lenses of how, you know, people get married, but remember in 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 the ancient world, kings especially, you would use your children as, uh, as part of a treaty. So these marriages, if you made an agreement with a neighboring king for peace, you would then ex essentially exchange children. I'll give you my daughter for, for your wife and you give me your daughter. So that as we think about if we're going to keep this treaty, if we're going to hold up our end of the bargain, remember that your daughter is my wife. And I'll, when I think about my end of the deal, I remember that my daughter is in your care. And this was part of treaty making, which may sound appalling to us, but that is the way it was done. But it doesn't make it right that Solomon was the king of Israel and God, um, th this was still forbidden. This is displeasing to God. Um, Deuteronomy 17, 17 says specifically, the king must not take uh, many wives. And but that was just sort of how things were done. I think for our lives, there are things that we are asked to do in our everyday lives. Whether it's at your place of work. Typically, you'll see it in a workplace. But there's other times when someone will say, look, that's just the way things are done. I know it's maybe dishonest or you have higher moral standard. But in our industry, this is how things get done. And this is what you have to say to your client. And this is how we communicate that. Even if it's, you know, we know what's behind it. And it's never acceptable to God, to compromise. But here we have Solomon compromising. He's doing what other kings are doing, not following God's way. And it's not just that he had foreign wives, but he had many wives. 
And these numbers are astounding. And these may be, you know, 700, 300, kind of round numbers, but who cares? I mean, the point is, that's a lot. The point is, there's a lot of women. Um, from the beginning of time in Genesis chapter 2, God lays out his design for humanity in marriage. That, uh, that one man and one woman will be joined together for life. And that is God's design. Yet we read the Bible and we say, wait a minute. There's a lot of polygamy, especially in the Old Testament. Is, um, is polygamy okay? Or is it sometimes okay? Because there's, uh, you know, seems like there's a lot of this. What I will say, that's actually a really good question. Uh, what I would say is this. Nowhere in the Old Testament, or nowhere in the Bible, does God condone polygamy as a good path. Only upholds um, a monogamous union in marriage. Um, there are a, a handful of passages that could be construed as possibly uh, sort of endorsing or saying that polygamy is okay, but none of them come even close to saying that this is a normative or a good thing that God, um, that is pleasing to God in any way. So, okay, well, what about these heroes of the faith? There's all these Old Testament heroes, and a number of them had multiple wives or wives and concubines. And you say, well, what's the deal with that? Again, a good question. Even our passage today in verse 6 holds out King David as an example of having a heart for God, as being fully devoted to God. That is God's um, exemplary person. David, you say, wait a minute. Wasn't, didn't David have multiple wives and concubines and commit adultery with another man's wife? How is he such a person of faith? And I would say, first of all, for all those heroes, uh, they are never commended for their sin and polygamy. And in the Bible, the only sinless hero is, is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That Jesus lived a completely sinless life, but every other person who's commended in any way is a person who is deeply broken by sin. Every one of them. And there's, we focus on the, you know, the, hey, here's the outward actions of David's life are clearly sinful, and I agree. But God sees David's heart, and there is something about God, it's something about David's heart that God sees that is exemplary. David broke commandments, but he didn't break the commandment to have no other gods. The first commandment, you will have no other gods before me. And, and God knows that, and he sees his heart. He did not turn to other gods. And he, that is the aspect of his faith that he is certainly commended for. So it's, it, But it doesn't mean that other stuff is okay at all. And David was somebody who actually repented of his sin. He, he knew that he needed God's forgiveness for, for some of these things. So, um, so that's that. Um, oh, the other thing you see, you see the lives and the families of these people who've who've had these various polygamous um, behaviors in the Bible, and there's a lot of strife, and there's a lot of conflict, and there's a lot of negative things that flow from that. Um, so. Um, we see God's plan for marriage, and if we understand it rightly, God designed it, and it's good. Uh, marriage and sexuality, and when it's expressed in his, in his, by his design, it can be very beautiful and good, and it can reflect his love. When it is used inappropriately, it can actually be destructive 
and, um, and harmful. We, we, you know, when I talk to people about this, I often describe it like if you have a fireplace in your house and you have a fire in the fireplace, it's very lovely and it's warm and it can be a, a, a lovely part of your house. If you take that very same fire and just move it a few feet into the middle of your living room, it's going to burn the house down. It's no longer lovely and beautiful. There's a, there's a place for it. There's a boundary for it where we can enjoy it. And um, so, the, so here we have Solomon who's gone out of bounds with his possessions, with his foreign wives, and with his many foreign wives. But that really wasn't the main problem. None of that. The main problem was Solomon's heart. It's that these women turned his heart in the Hebrew notion of heart is not just your emotions. It's, it's your entire inner self was no longer for the Lord. Verse 4, he, his heart became divided. He was not fully devoted to the Lord. Verse 6, he did not follow the Lord completely. Now you'll notice here, Solomon doesn't renounce the God of Israel. He doesn't turn from God. He just has his heart divided. He has a heart for God, and, but his heart is divided towards these women, his wives. And once his heart is uh, bad, once his heart is divided, it turns to false worship. Uh, we see this in verse 7 and 8, where he's building little temples or chapels and altars to these gods of his wives, these foreign false gods. In verse 6, we get this summary that Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely. That's what went wrong. It all starts in the heart. And notice how it's, it's um, notice the subtlety of sin. That Solomon had lived a very good life and that he had honored God in many ways. And, and in verse 4, it's in his old age that this happens. It started in his heart and it, it planted a seed of sin and rebellion. And in his old age, he, he turns, which is a great reminder for us too. If you are old, I'm not going to throw a number on that, but if you consider yourself old, or if you consider yourself someone who's, I've been a Christian for a long time, I've been following the Lord for a long time, I've got these things down, we always must examine our hearts. Because even Solomon, with all of his advantage, with all of his wisdom, his heart was taken in his old age. I, that's why I love, I love that we have a vibrant, in this vibrant senior adult ministry. And I love... All that they do in the senior link is so fun on Fridays. And they don't just come and, and sit and eat snacks. I mean, that's what I do when I visit them. But what they are there to do, I'm there to enjoy snacks with them. What they are there to do is to seek God's heart, to study his word, and to be transformed by it at every age and stage of life. Praise God for them and, and, and for this church. So, so here we have Solomon. He has... It has gone wrong. What is God's response? We see in verse 9. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel. And we expect that, right? There was already the warning that if you do these things, God will be angry. And he does them and we see God's anger. That's just part of the deal. But we, we have to remember that this is actually kind of an astounding thing in, anxious, in the ancient world. In Solomon's day, if you were to have... You, you, of course you would worship multiple gods. You would have different temples. or You want to keep them all happy. So you, you sacrifice to this god. And there's a foreign god. Maybe I'll keep that one happy. And the more bases I cover, the better it's going to be for me. And, and so in that day, this would have been um, 
strange that a God is demanding exclusive devotion. That you will worship me alone. That I have your whole heart. Your heart is divided in no other way. But then we think, well, that's not actually all that different than the world we live in, is it? People who, uh, you may be a Christian or call yourself a Christian, but you're also, there's aspects of other faiths and traditions that you, um, that you, that you want to do. Because you're, a, you know, maybe you're a Christian, but there's certain Buddhist prayers that you enjoy or certain meditation practices or certain rituals or Native American spirituality or there's all different spiritualities. That, and if somebody were to, to see your life, they would say, wow, you're really spiritual. You're, you're, you're actually, um, I thought you were just a Christian, but you're actually uh, better than that. You're, you're, you're covering a lot of bases and people still very, um, very open to these things. Yet, God says, no, I am the one true God, and you will worship me alone. And that's what I demand of my people. Because I am fully devoted to my people. And I love you fully. And I love you that my son would die for you. And I will redeem you to myself, but you, you must worship me alone. You can't be devoted to anything but me. I, that's why I'm... I'm uh, in our uh, youth ministry today is uh, sort of what we call push-up day. So the... The students are sort of going into their, their next grade classes. And um, sixth graders, for the first time, are sort of joining into the, the student ministry. And I have a sixth grader. They're, they're wonderful. And uh, so I was talking to my wife. I said, what's the lesson today? And it's the centrality of Jesus. The very first lesson they're going to get. Hey, welcome over to the Bell House. Kind of cool. Hanging out with the older kids. It's a fun place. And you're going to get to know each other. We're going to have fun. But you know what you're going to learn first above anything else is that Jesus is the center. And we're here to help you understand that and live it. And I'm trying to live it in my life. And we're going to do this together. So praise God. That warmed my heart to know that. It's not just spirituality or just one other way of, of um, being enlightened. It's about Jesus alone. So that's what we want. We don't want to experience this failure that Solomon experienced. And so, the, so lastly here, what's our, how do we safeguard? How do we avoid this kind of failure? And there's lots of ideas we could throw out. One idea would be um, good examples. We need to have people of faith, of heroic faith, in our community to be exemplary to, um, to new believers and to young people, to, to live out as a hero of faith, as an example, so that they will not fail. Yet, we look at this passage and we say, wait a minute. Solomon had David. David was the ultimate example of faithfulness to God, or a heart for God. And Solomon had that, and yet he still failed. We might say, okay, well, that won't completely, that's a good thing, won't completely safeguard our children and, and, and new believers. But what about experiences? What if we give them, what if people have such an experience of God that they will just know how real God is and how powerful he is and they, it will keep them from falling away. Yet, we look at verse 9, that God, and you can read about this, the Lord had appeared to him twice. He had such an intense, amazing experience of the presence of God that God was personally present with him twice and yet he failed. So, well, okay, well... We could try education. We just need to teach 
New believers. We need to teach young people the truth. They need to have all the right doctrine. And if they just have the right doctrine, then they will not fail. And we look at verse 11, and it's the Lord taught Solomon. The greatest example in the world, the, great, the most powerful experiences, the most wonderful education, and they did not uh, foolproof Solomon. They didn't keep him from falling. He had all those things. Now, these are good things. And we want these things in our church, and we want them in our church in increasing measure. However, they will not guarantee that no one will fail. What is the guarantee? How do we keep from failure? It's easy. You just have to have a completely undivided heart all the time. The, the first command, I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first of the Ten Commandments. So your heart will have no other God before God. And Jesus said, the first, the greatest, the most important commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and strength. And we do that. And then you will not fail. Here's the problem. I don't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time. I have not loved him perfectly. There are things that have captivated my heart. And we, when we gather and we pray prayers of confession, we pray, Lord, I have not loved you with my whole heart. And I think we all pray that with a fairly clean conscience to agree, yeah, I haven't done it. I've actually failed. So what do I do? Praise God for his grace. In verse 13. God promises, he's gonna, I'm going to tear this kingdom from, from you, Solomon, but, or from your, from your son. But for the sake of David, my servant, for the sake of Jerusalem, I've chosen. I'm not going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save a remnant. God's saying, basically, I made a promise to David. That David was sinful, but he had a heart for me. You're sinful and your heart is far from me, but, but my promises are still good, even though your heart is bad. The promises of God do, are not nullified by our sin. So we need to turn back to him and receive that grace. That is amazing grace. There was a church in the, um, in the New Testament. There was a, one of the early churches in Ephesus. And the message came to them from God. And they, they were, it was a good church. They had good doctrine. They had... Um, they were hardworking people. They had persevered through terrible things. The message to them was this. You've lost your first love. You believe the right things. You're working hard. You, you've put up with a lot of things. You, but you've lost the heart. It's in the heart that I care about. And you've lost it. And the instruction to them was to repent and do the things you did at first. What did we do at first? At first I realized that I'm a sinner and I need God's grace. And I realized that grace comes through Jesus Christ, what he accomplished on the cross. I turn back to him and I say, I have not loved you with my whole heart. And I receive forgiveness and God will purify the heart. And God turns our heart back to him, the divided heart. We just need to remember the gospel, remember Jesus. And therefore, Solomon's disobedience here actually gives us a glimmer of hope for us. Let us pray. Father God, this is our only hope. You are our only hope. So we turn to you with our divided hearts. And Lord, if our hearts, uh, if there's anything, that, Lord, give us a warning sign. If there's anything in our lives, anything that I've brought here, Lord, that is pulling me away from you, anything that is uh, 
dividing me to, from worshiping you holy, Lord. I pray that you would show it to me and that I would take it and say, Lord, I am sorry. I repent. I receive your grace. And I pray that you would renew my heart, that you would make my heart pure to worship you as you deserve. And may you be glorified in that. Lord, we thank you. Father God, we thank you that Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord and Savior, with an undivided heart, prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And that he accepted in obedience the path that you gave him to the cross. And by his death and resurrection, Lord, and by faith in that, we receive these things. We praise you for this. Renew us, restore us, and be glorified. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.